Welcome to the Breaking the Startups podcast, where we feature stories of people from non-traditional backgrounds who broke into tech. Today we're speaking with Anthony Pompliano, or better known as Pump, who is an army veteran, a serial entrepreneur, and one of the greatest growth hackers out there. After finishing up service, Pump led growth initiatives at Facebook and Snapchat, arguably the top social networks in the world. If you're someone who's a veteran, interested in how growth marketing works at big tech firms, then this episode is a goldmine. Pump shares a lot of advice that helped him excel in his career, which eventually led him to starting his own venture capital fund, where he now advises early stage startups on growth and user acquisition tactics. Now, I want to take a moment to thank you, our listener, for taking the time out of your busy lives and tuning into this episode. I could guarantee you that you're in a select group of folks who are determined to take action towards improving your careers and preparing for the technological revolution that's ahead of us. And over the last few months, we've had an amazing outreach from our fans asking for specific next steps they could take to break into tech. So we listened to you guys and put together this Breaking the Startups five-step challenge. If you go to breakingthestartups.com forward slash challenge, you can learn all about the challenge and the instructions. The main objectives of the five steps is to get you connected with others who have similar backgrounds and interests to you, learn about various roles in tech and how to acquire those skills, how to tell your story from the position of power, and most importantly, how to build relationships with people in tech who will become your biggest advocates. As always, give us your feedback by dropping a review on iTunes. It's not only the best way to tell us and our team about what you think of this podcast, but it will also help us tailor stories to what you, the audience, wants to hear. Now, without further ado, please enjoy this episode and let's break in. Growing up, we're told that in order to be successful, you need to be a banker, a doctor, or a lawyer. That's what the gatekeepers want you to think. But we're part of something bigger. We're part of a technological revolution. Either you're at the table or on the table. Get in the end. 10X. Yo, 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 this is Ruben Harris. I'm here with the homies, Arthur and Timor Meister. And this is the Breaking Stars podcast. Timor, can you please tell the people what we're doing today? Yes. Yeah, so we're actually recording today's interview at the Veterans Conference hosted here at GSV Labs in Silicon Valley. There are a couple of hundred veterans outside of our recording room. They're talking about how to start companies and how to break into tech. And uh, today we have a very special guest who is going to do a deep dive into what it takes to scale a product and increase user growth. Arthur, can you please introduce the guest? Yeah, thanks, Timor. So today we have a pleasure of speaking with Anthony Pompliano. Anthony is a, he's a veteran. He spent six and a half years in the military. He also started two tech startups and sold them. He ran product and growth at Facebook and Snapchat, which is super impressive. We'll go deeper in that during the interview. And uh, most recently, he started a VC fund based in North Carolina called Full Tilt Capital. And uh, he actually, in the last six months, already made over 41 investments, which is super, super impressive. But he's best known for his growth. Yeah. So, Pomp, you, you and I, well, your friends call you Pomp, right? That's right. Thanks for being with us. And we met in LA. Why, why, how'd you get into doing things in North Carolina? Yeah. So, um, I grew up in North Carolina. I was born in South Florida, grew up there, and uh, family still lives there. And so, I think it's one of these things when uh, you go all the way to school, right? When you come back, if you got nowhere else to go from a job perspective, so moved back there, uh, built uh, the companies, and then uh, came out to Silicon Valley to uh, work at Facebook. Dope. So you're bringing it back home. 
um, and and you doing you did growth before doing that. And so, for the people that don't know, can you kind of break down what growth actually is? Yeah, growth is um, it's a multiple. I like to say that it's like a multidisciplinary approach to um, building companies or revenue, right? And so, it's a combination of everything from uh, engineering, design, research, data, et cetera, and using it in a data-driven, iterative uh, way to try to better understand how to get people to take certain actions, You know, use your product, uh, use it more often, tell their friends about it, and just ultimately grow those metrics that you're measuring. Yeah, yeah. And I know that in the pre-chat, you talked a little bit more about how you started figuring this type of stuff out, and you were passionate about some things growing up and started applying these strategies to get those that type of engagement. Can you talk a little bit more about how you started developing that skill? Because they don't teach it in school, right? Yeah. Yes, I think that uh, growing up, I'm the oldest of five boys, so I got four younger brothers. And uh, we always, you know, we grew up with enough, right? But it was always kind of, you know, what else can we do? What can we get? Whatever. And I laugh and I say that one of the best things my parents probably ever did was they didn't give us allowance. And so uh, it was always kind of, you know, where are we going to get 20 bucks so we can go to the movies or or buy, you know, whatever. And so we were always coming up with these like schemes, right? And so um, in North Carolina, it, it snows, but it doesn't snow a lot. And so when it would snow, we would literally race through the neighborhood and convince all of the different homes to let us shovel snow, right? Or like we would, um, you know, we, we would try to, uh, I've got one brother who he got really good at. He would try to buy something on one of these marketplaces online, turn around and flip it for more, right? Or do these little things. And so, you know, you start out and you're just trying to make a dollar here or there. But then after a while, you start to realize like, okay, if I can do this when I get in front of 100 people, what if I get in front of 1,000, 10,000 people? And so it was really just trial by fire, right? In terms of you very quickly learn uh, what doesn't work, right? A lot of stuff doesn't work. But then when you figure out something that does, then you say, oh, you know, okay, how do I figure this out? You know, or how do I accelerate this? And then I remember the first time I realized that there was people on the internet that also were doing this, I, it was game changer, right? It's like, look, how do I find those people? How do I learn from those people? How do I get connected to those people? And I think just over time, you know, got to meet a lot of people who were working on this stuff. Um, and, uh, and kind of the rest is history, I guess. It's, yeah. Uh, so you're doing A-B testing offline and online. Mm-hmm. And you kind of like created jobs for yourself to make an allowance. And then you went to school. Mm-hmm. And you know, what did you study in school? Your, your dad gave you some gems in school. What, what were those? <laughs> yeah. So uh, there was no master plan when I was in school. You know, I was one of these, uh, I played football in college. And so I think football was a little bit more important at first, right, than, uh, than school necessarily was. But I, I got deployed while I was a uh, junior in college. And so when I came back, you know, kind of took things more seriously, learned a lot um, from a maturity standpoint, leadership, all that uh, being deployed. I mean, when I came back, I ended up getting two degrees. So uh, economics and sociology. In hindsight, you know, if you think of economics, it's more of like a macro view of the world. You end up seeing how the system works, how different influences on the system can affect different aspects of, you know, the global economy, things like that. And then at the, um, in sociology, it's more of like the, the micro aspects, right? So it's the individual nodes, how they make decisions, how they influence each other, and how those two systems, the macro and micro, affect each other. So in hindsight, you know, great, great idea at the time. There was no master plan. And then uh, when I was in my last semester, uh, I remember my dad uh, having a conversation with me and he said, um, he said, look, you can either get a job or you can make a job. And uh, the get a job thing was a little scary and I didn't really think that was too cool. But uh, the make a job thing I never really heard of before. And so I remember asking him, you know, like, what do you mean make a job? And he was like, well, you know, and basically described to me like, look, you can start a company, right? And uh, that sounded like the thing that he probably didn't want me to do. So that's what I went and did. Yeah. And yeah. this wasn't just like a tech company. You just said, hey, like whatever idea you have, just go out and do it, right? Yeah. I think he was like every other parent. He just basically was like, 
make me proud to be able to say that like you're not screwing up yeah. right it was kind yeah. of the the original approach and uh, and then from there I kind of just ran with it right and so that whole last semester I was there you know was just kind of thinking through a bunch of things uh ended up uh, working with uh, three friends from high school they uh, they all quit their jobs and uh, we started the first company yeah and can you take us back so it sounds like you got deployed when you were a junior in college then you came back and you were finishing up school the skills that you learned uh, while you were deployed uh how did that help you with starting your business with your yeah. classmates? Yeah, so I was 20 when I got deployed, uh, turned 21 overseas. You know, I'm before I go, I'm re- worried about what football game we're about to play, you know, what, what parties on Friday night, you mm-hmm. know, kind of what every other, you know, 20-year-old male college student thinks about. And um, then I get over there and, uh, you know, there's guys on my team that are 35 that got a wife, kids, and a mortgage. I'm like, I don't even know what a mortgage is, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, and so you kind of grow up quickly from a, like, maturity standpoint. And then also, obviously, um, there's all the stress and, you know, like it's war, right? And so all this stuff kind of changes your perspective. And I think that the thing I took away from, you know, my deployment was really that how fragile life was, right? And so it was never a thing where I said, you know what, I'm going to, you know, change my life, right? Or change the way I approach things. I think it just kind of naturally evolves after you've been in those situations. And so I said, look, like you're not promised tomorrow, right? And so like, how do I just start doing as much as I possibly can? And understanding that I needed to go you know, make a living, right? But then also like gain skills along the way. And so I pretty much knew like, I want to go do a bunch of things very quickly and try to cram, you know, what most people would get is, you know, years and years of experience, cram that into a short period of time. You know, somebody that, that um, I talk to a lot, he always says, uh, you can spend 10 years somewhere and you can get 10 years of experience or you can get two years of experience five times. Yeah. Right. And so like if you get, you know, 80% of what you're going to learn somewhere in two years, then like move on, right. Go get 80% of something, learning something somewhere else. Right. So I think that's kind of how I've always looked at it uh, through my career. Yeah, no, that's solid. And so, you know, when your dad was telling you to make a job and you have this experience with product and growth that you're known for now, you know, how did you approach, what did your day to day look like after you had like that minimum viable product and like what's some tactical advice or like, You've given us a lot of gems with how we launched our podcast and how we've grown things. Like, what did that day to day look like for people that are thinking about these types of roles? Yeah. So, I'll give you an example of like literally like early, early days and then like, you know, more sophisticated stuff now. Early days. Uh, so, what we did was uh, we created an online business directory, right, for uh, public schools, right? And so, if you look at a public school district, they've got all these websites, they get tons of traffic from the parents and students, but it's not monetized, right? So, anywhere else on the internet, they put ads, but no one was doing that. It's like a professional space. They're not going to just slap a Coca Cola ad, whatever. So we would go to them and say, hey, we'll give you, we will go out into the community and we'll convince small businesses to pay to be listed on an online business directory. What we need you to do is take the link to that directory and put it on your most trafficked web pages, right? And so, cool, that's a pretty easy sell, right? I'm going to give you free money, right? And I'm going to do it in a professional way, all stuff. So we get the school districts to agree to do that. And then we'd have the problem of like, all right, now we got all this traffic, like how do we go sell, right? And so we really had no experience. And so- uh, I remember us, you know, at first we would go to these like uh, small business organizations, whatever, and like it just was obvious, you know, I think I was 21, 22 years old. And they're looking at us like, hey, kid, I don't know what you, what, you know, I don't know what you want us to do here. And so uh, again, someone gave us the idea. They're like, why don't you just go talk to a business owner? Right. And so what we literally did for, uh, for a few months was um, we'd go in, uh, so there's four of us that started the company, we'd go in uh, sets of two. Right. Mm-hmm. And we would literally just walk into a, any restaurant, you know, any small business, whatever. We'd say, hey, is the owner here? I'm talking, we're walking in in sneakers, jeans, and a t shirt. And they're literally <laughs> looking at, like, who are you guys? Right. Um, and we'd say, hey, you know, we got this company and we've got, the, you know, this link, whatever. And what, you know, now in hindsight, we were doing is that we were talking to our customers. Right. 
and we were establishing like a personal connection with them so that they put a face to you know the the name of a company they they got to meet us they got to understand why we were doing this like it's all the classic things that people tell you know hey when you're starting a company go do but at the time we were just doing it at necessity because we didn't you know no one knew how to code no one knew you know growth hacks no one even knew i don't even think we knew what the word growth meant right, right. like it was just more of hey we've got to get dollars coming in the door because we aren't paying ourselves and we want to pay ourselves yeah. right and and like that necessity really drove what we did and now, you know, obviously you, you try to automate a lot of that stuff. Have you done so that? So it sounds like the having like an innocent view of the world actually helped you because it forced you to, instead of being concerned about raising money or finding a technical co-founder or all these other things that people typically kind of worry about when they do a little bit of reading about startups, you actually were like, hey, all right, we got the school board, on, the school's on board. Now let's go find customers. And there was like kind of short-circuited the whole process versus going out and trying to, to focus on not your kind of focus on your weaknesses. And so um, tell us a little bit about how that experience led to your other startups. And then how did that path uh, prepare you for a product role at Facebook and these huge tech companies? Yeah. So I think that, um, you know, throughout my career, I've always looked at it like leveling up, right? So I'm a, I'm a huge believer. Um, this analogy that I use all the time is uh, it's like a video game, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, you got to understand where you are in the game. So if you're playing a video game and you're on level one, you can't win the game, right? You've got to beat level one, you get to level two. Once you're on level two, you can beat level two, you get to level three, right? Like and you that. kind of work your way through the different levels of the game and eventually you win, right? Yeah. Or you beat the game. So if you're on level one, that doesn't mean you can go to level four, yeah. right? And so when you understand first where you are in the game, then it's just beat the level you're on, right? Yeah. And so, you know, my first company, frankly, like, you know, I, I, w- I would argue that it was a failure, right? In terms of, yeah, like we, we drug it across the line, but it wasn't, you know, some exploding, you know, tech company that, you know, got all this press coverage, et cetera. But then the second one, like leveled up a little bit, right? And like, mm-hmm. it was more successful and I was able to sell it and like put money in my pocket, you know, and do well, all that Was it stuff, the right? same people? No, 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 different, different team. And so then like, once you kind of learn that, like you take some of the learnings from that, right? Those guys all run a um, a successful company now that does uh, that's like in a similar space, right? So they were mm-hmm. able to level up, right? And then after I did that, then like I went to Facebook, right? And so level up again, and and um, at Facebook uh, started out um, running a growth team, right? And so mm-hmm. you know you start out with like this small little team, then all of a sudden you're figuring out what works, what doesn't work, and then the you know the growth explodes, right? And then you get a bigger team, you get more responsibility, and, and all this stuff. And so throughout my career, I've kind of just leveled up each time, right? But it it's the same thing as if I had just gone to one company and worked there for 20 years. Yeah. yeah. Right. It's just, to me, I've gotten, you know, probably 20 years of experience in a short period of time because I've been able to level up at different organizations, yeah. you know, over time. And Pump, you make it sound easy, but we know that <laughs> it wasn't that easy. So tell us when you were thinking about applying. So you, you sold your second company yep. and you're now looking for jobs uh, and you got a job at Facebook. So take us back to that moment when you first thought about applying to all these companies. How did you go about coming up with the plan, coming up with your story, coming up with how you're yeah. going to get that first job? Yeah. So here's what was crazy was I had never had a job before, okay. right? Like other than working for myself. And uh, when I sold the company, I really didn't know what I was going to do. Mm-hmm. A recruiter at Google reached out to me and I had never even thought about leaving Raleigh, never thought about working at another like company, like just none of that. It was all foreign to me. And so it kind of like came out of left field and I was like, oh, this like Google, like there's like buildings and people that work. Oh yeah. Like it's not just a web page, Right. And it like started to get my mind to think like, oh, those people must be pretty smart. Right. Like they've grown a pretty big product. And like, like I started to put it together in terms of, you know, my thought process at the time was if you want to learn how to do something, you can do one of two things. Either you can figure it out yourself. Right. And kind of just trial by fire, which I had all of the burns my entire life of doing that. Right. 
or you can just go find the people who've already done what you want to do and go learn from them, mm-hmm. right? And so I was like, okay, like this, this is interesting to me. And so uh, I interviewed at Google and Facebook, uh, went to Facebook. Mm-hmm. And I think that during the process, like I still to this day, I, I have no clue how I got a job at Facebook, right? <laughs> <laughs> so when, what was the interview process like? Is it like five? Because notoriously, they're pretty long interviews, right? You meet with a lot of people. There's yeah. a committee that approves it. So just give our listeners a little taste of like, what your experience was like applying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so uh, this is in uh, 2014, right? So, so I think it's probably similar. You know, there's a couple of phone screens and then you come on site. And uh, the thing that I appreciated about their process is you do everything in one day, right? So it's not like, hey, come for one interview, come back three days. Like, you know, so for somebody coming from out of town, I literally knew uh, one person that lived in Silicon Valley and, or no, I'm sorry. I knew one person like actually knew them in Silicon Valley who was not in technology and then I knew one guy off of Twitter who I'd like DM'd with one time before. That's it, <laughs> right? And so like, oh yeah, let's just, let's just do this, right? But as I'm going through this, like everyone I met was completely different. Right? I had never met people who like at the, you know, at the time I was just like, man, these people are so smart. They like, everyone's talking about technology and like, you know, where the world's going. And like, like it was, it was really uh, exhilarating, right? Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh my God, like, I have to get out here, right? Yeah. And so during that process, um, I literally remember I walked out of the last interview and I was like, yeah, I, I screwed that up, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, and, uh, and so what ends up happening is from, after I got in, I, I think I began to understand the interview process. And really what they were looking for from a product manager role is like a, a generalist, right? So it's like, you're not necessarily the best at one thing, but you've got these multi-disciplines that you're able to pull from and um, you've got some product intuition, et cetera, right? And like I always told him once I was in, I was like, man, you guys took a real flyer, right? <laughs> um, because I, I felt like, look, I was an outsider, right? Who, frankly, I look back and I was like, man, I was so naive to the process, right? Yeah. Like if I was now going through that process, I would have spent more time understanding what does the process look like? Like who else can I talk to to learn about the process, right? Can I meet anyone who's at Facebook and, and like, you know, try to get some inside knowledge, like all that kind of stuff. But I just kind of threw myself into it, right? And so I think there's a balance between like the propensity for action and also you know, the, the kind of planning, right? Yeah. Um, and, and so when you find that balance, it's just then just go. Yeah. Right? So what, what do you think about your story or what do you think about your past experiences that convinced Facebook to give you that job? Did you tell the story about yourself as a veteran in there? Or did that help you, you think? So I, I think I was really scared to tell that story because I didn't know how it'd be received, right? You know, and really the thing that I remember talking a lot about, right? This is, you know, almost three years ago now, right? So, so I don't remember everything we talked about, but I remember talking a lot about, you know, being the CEO of a startup, the little that I had read about what a product, I le- so this is, a, this is a very true story. I didn't even know what a product manager was when the Google recruiter first reached out to me. And so I literally went on the internet and I Googled, you know, product manager and all this stuff came up. And uh, I read on two different blogs that uh, there was a book called The Art of Product Management. They're like, you got to read this. And so I ordered the book on my Kindle and on the flight to San Francisco, I read that book. Awesome. And all the book kept talking about was, Product manager is the CEO of the product. And I'm like, well, a CEO is the same thing as being the CEO of the company. So I'm just going to talk about being the CEO of a company and being the CEO of a product. And that's all I talked about. Right? <laughs> and I essentially regurgitated everything that I had read in this book during the interview. <laughs> um, and, and, uh, and it worked, right? And yeah. so I think that um, that was really the like, saving grace to me, right? Was um, knowing the language. Being able to, yeah, yeah, knowing the language for sure, yeah. right? Two was also like, understanding the parallels between what did I just do and being able to articulate like this is how those skills or that experience like uh, relates to what I'm going to be doing for you guys. Right. But then the last thing I think is, uh, you know, 
after I got in, I, I realized uh, I interviewed a lot of people, right? So I, I interviewed, you know, I think it was like 150 people or something. And in that process, you start to realize like the patterns of people who are really uh, kind of high quality candidates versus the people who are kind of eh, right? Yeah. And the high quality candidates, I think they did like two or three things. So one is uh, they could always think on their feet, right? You just knew that, hey, if we throw new information, there's a problem, like they can quickly like stay calm, synthesize the new information and make like strong decisions. Two is they were always very clear in their belief of like communication, right? So like I used to always ask this question that said, hey, if you go home on Friday, everything's great with your product. You come in Monday morning and uh, half your user base just left, right? Like, what do you do? I probably asked that question to 100 people, right? Yeah. And only one person ever said to me, the first thing I would do is I would immediately alert every single person that needs to know that there's a problem, that there's a problem. And I was like, we're, you, we're about to hire you, right? Like, like that one little tidbit was so minuscule and like important though, right? Because it, they were thinking about this from a leadership position, right? Of like, oh, I need to make sure I'm communicating with everybody. I can't just go solve problems for myself because I'm operating within a larger organization, right? So that's kind of a difference between a startup where if it's only two or three people, that might not be part of your answer, right? And it sounds like there's some parallels between being in the military and probably like some of the things you learn being deployed, uh, leadership skills transfer over to your job when you were at Facebook because that scenario like losing half of your users could also be like finding out that maybe like your enemy just attack you right Absolutely. so you want to communicate as clearly as possible to everyone that needs to know about it but without raising a panic either right yeah yeah yeah, yeah. so so what was interesting is um the biggest difference i saw between the uh the military and like working in just the workforce really right but specifically large tech companies as a product manager, so in the military, you have like authoritative leadership, right? Like if the rank on my chest is, is you know, higher ranking than your rank, like I'm going to tell you what to do and you're going to do it, right? Or there's going to be like, there's repercussions for not doing it, right? In a tech company, like that's not true, right? And so what you have to use is more like influential leadership, right? I've basically got to buy in, or I've got to get you to buy into our team, our team mission, our culture, like all these things. And so you interact with your teammates differently. But as a product manager, you know, at least at Facebook, nobody reports to you, right? So the engineers don't report to you, they report to an engineering manager. The designers don't report to you, they report to a design manager. So you're responsible for a product and a team, but none of them report to you. <laughs> so it's like very, like you better be really good at influential leadership, right? Yeah. Because you've got to convince somebody to want to work on something so you get their best quality work out of them, right? And so I think that was like a major difference. And then, uh, you know, as we talk about like breaking into startups, when I got out here, I bet you Ben didn't even remember this. So there's a, uh, a guy named Ben Smith who had gone back and forth on Twitter like two, three years before I got out to uh, Silicon Valley. And um, he said, uh, I, I messaged him. I said, hey, man, like I basically don't have any friends out here. Like, uh, can I come like see you? And he was like, yeah, come, like, come over. And so I left work one day, took an Uber, which uh, didn't know the Bay Area, like an hour and a half away, right? Wow. And, like, the, like the, probably the most expensive Uber I've ever taken in my life. <laughs> And uh, get to his office. And um, during the conversation, he gave me, uh, he said, I got two pieces of advice for you, right? He said, the first piece of advice I have for you is keep your personal burn rate as low as possible, right? And so he said, what it does is it gives you optionality, right? So if you don't need a huge salary, if you don't need, you know, the $5,000 apartment a month, like all this stuff, he's like, you can go take a flyer on, you know, some early stage company that can't pay you that much, but they'll give you some equity, right? So mm -hmm. keep the burn rate low, you have options. Then he said, the second thing is, he says, in my experience, you were rewarded more for taking big swings in Silicon Valley than actually being successful in Silicon Valley. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, that's kind of counterintuitive. What does that mean? And he said, think of Sean Parker. He said, right. And so he goes, think of Napster, right? It's kind of how Sean made his original you know, name for himself. And he said, the company was not successful from a financial investment standpoint. Like they ended up getting sued, like, you know, a bunch of stuff went wrong there. Right. 
but everyone looked at Sean and, and you know him as the leader and said, look, that guy takes big swings, mm-hmm. right? And so when he does his next thing, I want to be involved because somebody who takes big swings like that, eventually they're going to connect, mm-hmm. right? And it's a grand slam. Yep. And so you know he was just like, look, you want to work on the highest visibility things. You want to work on the things that have the highest potential impact, right? Mm-hmm. You, you know, everything's hard. So you want to work on things that have the biggest payoff yep. because they're just as hard as the things that have the you know, small amount of payoff. And I thought those two pieces of advice uh, were great moving out to Silicon Valley, but also just great you know, life advice. Right? That's some good gems. So keep your personal burn rate low, take big swings. Um, can you talk a little bit more about what growth is like at a big company like Facebook versus what it was when you were running your company? Yeah. So I always talk about uh, when it comes to growth, uh, iteration speed, right? So if you take uh, two different companies, one can learn one new thing a day, right? Basically, they have one feedback loop and they do that every single day, right? Versus a company that can do that 100 times a day, right? The company that can do 100 feedback loops, it's going to learn a lot more, a lot faster, obviously, than the company yeah. that can do it one time a day. So a company like Facebook has a couple of advantages. One, they've got resources from a headcount perspective, right? Mm-hmm. Talent level, right? So I think when I started at Facebook, we had like maybe seven, eight people on the team, right? We went, uh, when I, stopped working on it less than a year later on that team, there was over 30 people, right? Mm-hmm. So you can scale really quickly. They're all high, you know, high quality, high talented people, et cetera. And then the third thing uh, that they have is uh, they've got custom software built, right? Mm-hmm. So they're able to obviously be, uh, run these like multivariate tests at a very different pace. And the last thing is the user base, mm-hmm. right? So in, when you run you know, these, uh, these growth tests, you've got to have statistical significance on the test, right? Mm-hmm. So you need a certain number of sample size to you know, go through your A-B test so that you can actually understand what the right signal is. And so, you know, it helps to have, I think the last number I saw was like 1.86 billion people use your service every month, right? <laughs> That's a lot of tests you can run, right? Yeah. Versus if you only have 100 users, it may take you a couple of days to get to statistical significance, right? Yeah. And so I think that's one, or those are four advantages that, you know, large tech companies have. But when I got there, you know, it, it, it's really all about, you know, th- there's a framework that I learned at Facebook that I still use today called understand, identify, execute, right? So the way I describe this is, uh, I think Abraham Lincoln gets credit for the quote, but I don't think he actually said it first, is uh, if you give me six hours to uh, chop down a tree, I'll spend the first four sharpening the ax. I like it. Right? And so understand, right, is understand everything about what's currently going on, right? What's our user base look like? What are they doing? What are they not doing? What's working? What's not working? Where did they come from? Just everything you can possibly understand. Then you use that to identify what are all of our areas of opportunity and what is the what do we project as the amount of resources we're going to need to accomplish that, right? And so then you can do a cross-section in terms of the highest impact things with the lowest deployment of resources, and you stack rank them in terms of prioritization, right? So, hey, we want to go do, you know, you identify, right? So understand, identify, what's the one, two, three, four, five things that you should go do, and then you go execute, right? When you get into the execution standpoint, then there's two things, right? So in order to know whether you're right or not, right, you basically have to have the right strategy, and you have to have perfect execution, right? Mm-hmm. And so the, the thought process there is if something goes wrong, right? So some action you took, some test you ran, whatever, doesn't work. If you didn't execute perfectly, now you're left wondering, was our strategy wrong or was the strategy right and we just poorly executed it, Yeah. right? But if you always perfectly execute your plan, then you get signal on, is the strategy right or wrong, yeah. right? And so by focusing on that execution standpoint, it helps you learn faster, right? And, and it almost ensures the accuracy of your test. Right. So how do you how do you know if you perfectly executed something? Because a lot of the times you know what you don't know, or you don't know what you don't know. Yep. So um, that was deep. <laughs> <laughs> so what was the what, like? Would you set out metrics? Like, how do you know if you're executing and you're executing on the right things? Yeah. So I think once you've identified, hey, you know, here are the 
the number one thing we should go do, number two, number three, based on the resource deployment and the potential impact, then what you want to do is you want to do a lot of upfront uh, in terms of expectation setting, right? So here's what we're going to go do, right? Like here's the actual actions we're going to do. Here's the resources we need to go do them. Here's what every single resource is going to do, right? Here's the metrics we're going to use to measure success. And something a lot of people don't do is here's the metrics we're going to use to measure like non-success or kind of the counter metric, right? So I always use the the idea around uh, push notifications, right? If I send more push notifications, I probably will get more people to my mobile app, right? But if 60% of the people who open the app then go shut off notifications, like that's probably not something I should keep doing, right? So it's great if I just measure the click-through rate on the push notification and usage in the app, but if I have no counter metric, then I don't know the actual like long tail or, 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 you know, kind of like a true understanding of the impact of this test, right? And so I think when it comes to execution, if you can clearly define that stuff before you run the test or take the action, then afterwards you go back to that list and say, did we do, you know, this action? Did we, you know, execute it this way? Did we validate these metrics or, or not validate these metrics? And, and it gives you pretty quick signal, right, as to uh, what's going right, what's going wrong. Yeah. It sounds very scientific too, because a lot of scientists, even inventors, they all come out with a like hypothesis, then yep. they spend a lot of time proving it. They analyze it and so on. So absolutely, yeah. Never been called a scientist before, but I'll take it. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, that, that's cool. That's cool. And so then, so then you you did all these things, and you leverage them in your next your next phases. Yep. And you've also been active in the community in several different ways. First of all, before talking about what you've done, you're doing in North Carolina. What brought you to VetCon today? Yeah. So I, I've known a couple of the guys for a while, and. When I got out of the military, I didn't really have a, like a veteran support network in any way, but I did uh, go back and I finished playing college football, right? And so one of the things that in hindsight, I believe that my transition back into like non-military life was it had a lot of similarities with a military unit, right? So a large number of guys that are all working together to accomplish a goal, right? Somewhat violent sport, right? In terms of playing football and an identity in terms of, you know, we're a team, right? So, so all of those aspects were very similar to the military and kind of eased the transition back. I say a lot of times that I don't think that veterans should think that they're going to be successful or are going to be successful in tech because they're a veteran, right? It's not dependent on each other, right? It's if you look at the people who are uh, some of the most successful veterans in tech, right? So Steve Blank, great example, right? Mm -hmm. Most people don't know Steve Blank was a military veteran, right? Yeah. It's because Steve Blank's a successful technologist who happened to have been in the military, right? And I think a lot of veterans today come out and they say, I'm a veteran who's going to go work in technology. I always tell them, no, you're a technologist who happened to have worked in the military. Got it. Right? And so that, again, very nuanced difference, but it's important because I think it one frames their mindset as to going from not so much woe is me, but kind of just like I'm entitled to something, right? Yeah. Because I'm a vet yeah. to no one's going to come and help me today, yeah. right? You know, I, people know that on Twitter, I tweet all the time and I say, you know, no one's going to show up today and build your company. For you, yeah. Right. And and same thing with getting a job or doing anything, right? Like yeah. you're in control of your own life. And if things go well, like you get credit. And if things go wrong, like you get the blame. Yeah. Right. And so just own it. And if there are, there are resources that exist, take advantage of it, but don't depend on it. Exactly. Um, and Related. Yeah, the re the resources are there to help you. Yeah, right. Exactly. But if you're not gonna if you're not gonna be successful already, the resources probably aren't gonna help you. Exactly. Right? Exactly. And then thinking about the the challenges that veterans face for the people that don't know, can you explain like how the struggles that some people go through leaving the military to reintegrate into civilian life? Yeah, yeah. So I think there's a couple of things. So one is just like as a human, right? So 
obviously if you are in the military and um, there's any sort of deployments or you know you're in a war zone etc there's all kinds of like you know catastrophic events and things like that that you know what what is it uh, PTSD right so like post traumatic yeah, stress disorder right and and so obviously the stress and you know, all this stuff right so there, there's one aspect of just like we have to take a human out of an incredibly chaotic environment and get them back into what ends up being a pretty boring environment in yeah. contrast and so there's all kinds of studies and work that's being done there then two is from a professional standpoint, if you're in the military, you can be everything from the infantry, right, which is kind of low skill, high physical activity, to um, you know you can be an officer in the intelligence units, right, and, and that's more you know less physical activity, more kind of mental stimulation, things like that. And so, no matter where you are in the military, you've got to come into the professional world. Well, there's very few jobs that you can do in the military that you can do in the private sector, right? You can be a pilot, you can you know do intelligence work, you know there, there's some of this stuff, but Again, there's no, um, I remember a guy told me, uh, he goes, listen, uh, there's no job application where you can write on it. I pulled the trigger, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, like I wish I shot a gun or I, you know, I, I knew how to like make a bomb or I knew how to, you know, care for my buddy if he got shot. Like, like that's not a job in the civilian, right? And so if you're in the infantry, for example, that has, you know, again, it's kind of low skill, high physical activity. You've got to be able to understand what were the soft skills I needed to be successful in the military. Yeah. Right. And so leadership, teamwork, you know, all of these things that then you can transfer them over. Yeah. Right. Because it's very different to say, you know, look, I was, uh, I was an infantryman and, um, you know, I was a squad leader. Right. Well, when you think about what is that, it's no, I led 13, you know, people in combat. We were responsible for, you know, probably tens or hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars worth of equipment and, you know, we had, we ran, you know, 172 missions and, you know, here's all the planning that went into it. And like, you can start to tell the story of like, what does that mean? Yeah. Because one of the big challenges is a lot of civilians don't know what an infantry squad leader yep. is. Yep. Right? Like, yep. So again, it goes back to it. I think Ruben, you said, um, you know, you, you spoke the language after reading, yep. you know, the book, Art of Product Management, like same thing for vets. Like you've got to be able to speak the language of the, per, you know, the recruiter or the technologist you're talking to. Because it's not up to them to learn your language, yep. right? It's your responsibility to learn their language because that's the world you're going into. And I, and I would also push back and say that sometimes, like now that more companies are interested in hiring veterans, they should learn what an infantry person does Absolutely. and things like that. And yes, you are focused on skills-based hiring and credentials and things like that, but also maybe pay more attention to traits-based hiring because to your point, in the military, you are going to develop leadership skills and know how to build teams and things like that and, you know, pulling triggers and, you know, that's kind of like execution depending on what the mission is, blah, blah, blah. Absolutely. There's, there's things that's translatable that you that the veteran's going to have to communicate to the employer. But the other, on the other side, I think that we shouldn't say that the companies can just get away scot-free and just be like, I want to hire veterans, but not know what's going on in the military either. Absolutely. Yeah. I think from the company side, it's, if they are serious about hiring veterans, they need to learn this stuff, right? If you're the individual, you can't count on them knowing, yeah. right? And so, so it's kind of like you got to play both sides. The other thing I would say too is uh, it's really interesting to me that um, you know now from the investing side, like we are doing more trait based, you know, pattern recognition, right? You know, what traits does this person have? You know, what, how can we pick up data points on them as an individual? How they make decisions? You know, what have they done previously? Why did they do those things? You know, why did they make those decisions? But when it comes to hiring inside of companies, we're looking for the best of the best. Yep. But then we change the way that we evaluate people, yep. right? It's, you know, what school did you go to? Where did you work previously? Like all this stuff. And so, you know, I would make the argument that if when you're investing, you're looking for the best people yep. to build companies, build products, et cetera, you use trait-based hiring. Why are we not doing that for hiring internal to companies, yep. right? 
I've never done enough digging to understand why, but like that's just kind of a yeah. suspicious thing to me. If you and, will, yeah. right? there's actually companies like Shift.org, and we're about to interview Mike, who are helping um, kind of veterans tell their story and highlight the traits that differentiate them. And it's super powerful because you want to play a game at which you have like kind of a competitive advantage, and you want to at which you have a chance of winning. So focusing on your traits and leadership and soft skills is something that you could totally leverage in your interviews versus trying to convince someone that, hey, I know how to do this technical thing or I know how to do this skill, which you don't have like credentials for. And you're actually involved with Shift a little bit, yep. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so I know Mike very well. Can you talk a little bit more about Shift and your, your tie with him? Yeah. So, so I think that you know Shift.org is really interesting because it now adds a filter or a buffer, right? And so when I was at Facebook, actually, one of the things was uh, there was a special ops, I think it was a commander who applied to a tech company. And one of the people at that tech company told me that, hey, this person applied to my company and we didn't even give them a phone screen, right? And now, so for people who don't know, when you're the commander, right, that means you're in charge of the entire company, which usually, you know, 250, 300 people, right? So like, it's a big deal, right? Essentially, like take away big deal, right? a lot of skills. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, you got a lot of skills. You're a leader, like, you know, all that stuff. And so I think that I remember digging in with that person. They went and talked to the recruiting team and everything. And when they finally got to the recruiter, the recruiter said to them, they said, I don't know what that means. Like, I don't yeah. know what the commander is, right? Yeah. And so it was, oh, okay. And so I remember we went um, and, and talked to Facebook and we were like, hey, how do we help you guys, yeah. right? Like, like, you want to do this. And there's obviously like a breakdown in terms of the understanding. And, they, and to their credit, they were doing a ton of work to understand, you know, what are these different roles? What are the, like, what is the crossover skills, all this stuff? And so we offered, we said, look, like we'll help you look at the resumes, right? I can probably in a fifth of the time it takes you understand, is this person good for X or Y role, right? Mm -hmm. So I think what Shift's doing is they're trying to say, hey, look, we know the language of both, right? The military and of the the tech company. Let us help you kind of uh, see who's like the cream of the crop, right? Like, like, Like we'll help you do some of this. You just come here and we'll say, you know, here's the 10 people, right? Like, like, you know, this woman's great. You know, this guy's great. Here's what we think that they're, what skill or, or, or um, role can they fill, right? What are their interests? Kind of uh, what location do they want? Like they do a lot of that work for the tech companies. And, and so what I, th- I, I hope will come out of this, and it looks already like the early signs are showing, they'll have a higher conversion rate, right? In terms of the people who come into shift getting hired. And then two is that's only one metric because on the back end, you need like the success metric, right? So just getting hired is only half the battle, right? Yeah. Then you've actually got to perform, right? And I tell every veteran the same thing. I say, look, when you get hired, whether you know it or not, if somebody knows that you're a veteran, you're carrying the torch for every other veteran. And if you don't perform, then all of a sudden veterans get a knock on them as to, oh, maybe they're not as good as people say, yeah. right? Or maybe actually they're, you know, they don't fit as a computer scientist, yeah. right? Or an engineer or, you know, whatever. And so it's not a reason that you're going to be successful, but it should be a motivator. Yeah. Right. And I actually and that goes think that, that for a lot of people with non traditional backgrounds, yeah, I was gonna say um, the same thing. like coding bootcamp grads. They don't have a computer science degree. Yep. It applies to them as well. Like you're also carrying the torch of uh, convincing a- everyone on your team that bootcamp f- graduates can perform uh, on the Just same level. Well. Yeah. And it might not be always true. Yeah. Because again, it comes down to the people, the human, yeah. like the person actually doing the job but just something very important and understand to you're mind. representing somebody yeah. like a bigger community of people and it could even be your family or whoever referred you in they're stepping sticking their neck out for you and rep- understand you're representing them as well as you yeah so i have a question so what is your view considering that you've been an entrepreneur you've worked at big tech companies what is your view on veterans who are 
finishing up their service and looking for options to do in the civilian world. I see a lot of organizations kind of emphasizing entrepreneurship, starting companies. And there's now companies like Shiv that are also helping people get into the workforce. So what advice would you have for someone who is at that crossroads? And should they kind of, is one path easier or better than the other? Or, or what is the path to break into startups for now since like this? Yeah. So I think the sexy thing that people say is like, go start a company, right? The problem is that most companies aren't successful, right? And so I actually was talking to a veteran the other day and I said to him, I said, look, when you joined the military, you didn't know how to be a soldier, right? It's not like you just showed up and were like, cool, I know how to march and how to do like, how's that, right? what they do? They put you into basic training, right? They, they broke you down. They trained you to do things the way that they have figured out are the best ways to do it. And then once you got through all that, they then put you at the lowest level of the totem pole, right? And it took time and you know effort on your part to work your way up to the leadership role that he eventually had. And I said, so why do you think that you can then go to another industry, right? So if you look at the military just as an industry, you're going to go to a different industry and you're going to skip the training and the totem pole and you're just going to start at the top. Yeah. Some people can do that, right? That's great. And and they should go do that. But most people probably can't do that, right? Like like it's just from a probability standpoint, the odds are against you, right? And so instead they can do things like I think going to all of the the boot camps, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Going to college, right? College school and an option. And so getting some sort of formal training, mm-hmm. right? And then I think that by starting off at a tech company, and, and I don't push people necessarily to go to big tech companies, right? Mm-hmm. So if you go work at a Facebook, a Google, you know, Twitter, whatever, like those are all great and you're going to get tons of experience, right? And it's like a crash course in learning this stuff. But to go to a growth company, yeah. right? Um, you know, I, I was talking with Ryan at Flexport today, right? And he was, oh, yeah, that's they, a great you know, they've hired, yeah. I think like 15 veterans or something, right? Yeah. And he's like, oh, I'm looking for more, yeah. right? Why? Because like, when they come in, they're able to go into this fast-paced environment that, you know, I think they've got like 300-something employees, right? Yeah. So it's not the 15,000 or whatever that a Facebook has, but it's still a, a bigger company. There's some security there in terms of they're not going to run out of money tomorrow, mm-hmm. right? And you can learn while also um, having upwards mobility and, yep. you know, some of the the kind of um, advantages of entrepreneurship, yeah. but like all the pressure's not on you, yeah. right? And then you can go to like a two- or three-person company. Right. And so like, that's even a more of a crash course, but like there's more pressure on you. Right. And so I always tell people to optimize for the likelihood of success right early. And then once you get a win or two under your belt, no matter how small, like goes back to that original advice of like now start taking massive swings. Yeah. Right. But, you know, with Ryan, he was telling me, um, you know, Flexport's his third company. First two, he never raised money. Yeah. Right. 15 years building two companies, never raised a dollar, starts flex, you know, now gets the flex port, bam, yeah. right? You know, $90 million in venture capital, right? Yeah. And so like this stuff is, uh, it doesn't happen overnight, yeah. right? It sounds great and we can write all the articles and say, oh, look, overnight success, but like it never happens overnight. Um, and frankly, you know, if you don't, it, ignorance can be an advantage, yeah. but it can also be a dangerous, dangerous, yeah. you know, cliff to walk off of, yeah. right? And so um, I think that, you have to be self-aware enough to understand, are you getting in over your head versus or am I walking into something that I have the probability to actually succeed? Yeah. yeah. And it goes back to your video game analogy, how like you start on one level and then you have to raise, like elevate yourself through every level yep. and then you learn new skills, you get new uh, like Yeah, you, like unlock, you unlock yeah. the right to go to the next level, exactly. right? Yeah. And, and now you've got the skill sets to be successful yeah. at that level. And I actually see, and that's part of our motivation for starting this podcast is actually to show people that, hey, there's, it's not just the CEOs of the companies that build these products. There's whole teams. There's designers, engineers, 
data scientists, salespeople who build these products. And you should like, even though like it's not as sexy, oh, I'm just gonna be like one of the like middle ranks, that's where you learn all the experience and that's what prepares you for starting your own company. You don't just uh, like, there's success stories of 19 year olds starting uh, huge companies and doing well, but for every Mark Zuckerberg, there's thousands of people that end up folding shop and you're better off surrounding yourself with smart individuals, getting the training, and then going out and starting your own company. Yeah. Um, and, and, and and sometimes like you talk about taking big screens, both of you guys about entrepreneur entrepreneurship, but sometimes if you join a company that's smaller, like joining a flex force with momentum is is it's a it's risky, but it's a safer bet because they're taking off. But if you go to something like the two to three person company that you said that's a that's, massive swing that's still a massive <laughs> swing it might be that next facebook probably not but if you choose right you can you can absolutely get closer the, the uh i love telling people uh i think it's garrett camp right yep. um so that's, so, the, that's so, the first investor uber right yeah so or, so garrett and uh and travis Expo. um were, yeah they were kind of the 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 minds behind um uber right mm-hmm. and so you know they're founders uh they hired ryan graves Yeah, crazy, crazy story where Travis tweeted out saying, you know, I need a BD guy who, uh, you know, there's massive equity in a new company or whatever. Ryan was just on Twitter, sent a message, said, hey, you should email me, whatever. Mm -hmm. They end up hiring him. Right. So technically he didn't start the company, but he's a CEO, right? Like massive swing, lots of pressure, huge upside. Yep. Right. And so now all of a sudden you fast forward. I think that that was a billion dollar tweet. He's yeah. A billionaire, right? I, yeah. I think that Ryan is a billionaire. Right. <laughs> yeah. And so like, look, if you're so hung up and like you, you literally need the, uh, the ego stroke of saying like, I'm the founder and that's worth more to you than like being the first CEO founding team member and billionaire from Uber. Then like you're just a psychopath, yeah. Right? <laughs> like, like you know, it, to me, it's it's less about the the ego strokes, and it's more about just put yourself in a position to win. And yeah. if you do that over and over and over again, like you're gonna get better at your job, your skills. You're gonna build the experience, and then like next thing you know, you pop your head up. And you're like, oh my god, like look what I just did, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and, and so it's, I think it's a good point of like the massive swing doesn't have to be start a company. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And it goes it goes to the point of just like also understanding the landscape. Uh, and building relationships because no one starts a company on their own and having that having that year or two of experience working for another company you're not just going to be building that product you're going to be going to events you're going to be meeting people in the community and just by those interactions if you do start this if you decide to start a company a year or two from that point in time then you already have way more resources that will ensure your success so that's a great point i do want to ask you a question about um just like tech as a whole, you talked about um, the subjects you studied in school, economics, and and you said economics, it's the macro level. Yep. So nowadays, um, we hear a lot about like automation, driverless cars, and you're in tech now. So what is your opinion in terms of where everything is headed? And <laughs> yeah. um, what are some of your predictions for the future? And like related to that also, can if you could touch on, you brought up Steve Blank and the rise of the rest and like tie that into there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think that let's touch on uh, Steve Case. So Steve Case is uh, one of the founders of AOL, uh, I think Revolution Capital, what he runs now, based out of DC. Um, His belief is, uh, so he's got this program, Rise of the Rest, right? It's basically all of these, you know, technology hubs outside of Silicon Valley Mm -hmm. and, you know, there's great companies there, right? I've got a venture capital fund that's based in Raleigh, North Carolina, right? 90% of our LPs are PhDs, MDs, or have uh, had over a $400 million exit, Right. We've never taken more than $100,000 from an LP, and we've never taken money from anyone outside of North Carolina, 
Interesting. Right. Mm-hmm. And we're probably shooting ourselves in the foot doing it, right? Because it's hard. Mm-hmm. But it's a principle-based idea of geography is just a construct of like the human mind, mm-hmm. right? In terms of being more successful in Silicon Valley versus Raleigh, like there are benefits to being in Silicon Valley, but mm-hmm. there's a lot of benefits to being in Raleigh, North Carolina, right? Mm-hmm. And so I always tell people that um, Raleigh, Durham area in, uh, in North Carolina has the highest PhDs per capita in the country, wow. right? And I think it's number three in terms of uh, return on invested capital in the country. Interesting. Nobody knows that, yeah. right? Well, if you look at that area, there's three major universities, right? So you got UNC, Duke, and uh, NC State, mm-hmm. right? They're all very, very heavy in terms of science and technology, mm-hmm. right? And so there's a lot of the same ingredients that you get in the Silicon Valley, right? With the education, with the networks, with the intelligence, right? All the stuff. There's a lot of finance companies in North Carolina. Absolutely, yep. Yeah. So Charlotte's right there, right? And there, there's mm-hmm. there's plenty of money, all this stuff. And the so, fintech. yeah. And, and so here, right? So Raleigh, North Carolina is also the headquarters of Red Hat, which is mm-hmm. the largest open source company in the world, mm-hmm. right? It's the headquarters of SaaS, which I think is the largest privately held software company in the world, right? Nobody knows these stuff, yeah. right? And so it's it's one of these things where I tell people, hey, stop telling everyone it, yeah. right? Like, let's keep the secret to ourselves, right? But also but, every city has like their unique quality. Exactly. I just know that because I happen to live there, yeah. right? And so I think that, you know, we're based in Raleigh, but here's what we do, right? So the whole idea behind our venture capital fund was democratizing access, mm-hmm. right? So if you're a company in that area, I have the network that I can bring capital from San Francisco, New York, LA, you know, wherever to you in that area. If you're a limited partner or an investor in that area, I can get you access to national deal flow, mm-hmm. right? And so being that connector it is incredibly powerful, right? Yeah. There's more and more people, I think, that are doing that. They're moving back to, I, I saw, I think, the New York Times the other day, somebody was talking about how they're moving back to Ohio, mm-hmm. right? People are moving to Detroit, to Austin, to, you know, mm-hmm. Boulder, to all these areas where they're saying, look, like, I know those people, right? Yeah. Like, my friends in Silicon Valley are not going anywhere, right? Mm-hmm. When I come out here, I stay with them, right? Well, doesn't Josh Kaufman still live in Philly? I think he still lives in Philly. First time, yep, yeah, yeah. He, does, he, do, he invests out here all the time. And- it's 2017. Yeah. I, I bet you I haven't met in person 50% of our founders. Interesting. Right? Because guess what I can do, right? I can call. I can Skype, I can FaceTime, I, I can do all these things. Why do I need to go meet them in person? Yeah. Now I want to, right? Yeah. And I actively try to go meet them more and more and more. Yeah. But at the time we invest, sometimes the deal moves too fast, Yeah. right? And so, you know, you just find people that you can, you know, again, trust, right? That you think are working on interesting things. You think the right person to go do it. And then you got to kind of take a leap of faith on them. Right? Related to what team was talking about, like part of the reason why this is interesting is because like, even though the technology boom was like kind of driven by Silicon Valley, Technology started to take over everything, which is another reason why we started the podcast is because if that's the case or if you believe that, even if you don't want to break into startups and want to stay in the current industry that you're in, there's certain skills you got to develop. So can you talk a little bit more about how technology is taking over other things and automation? Yeah, yeah. So uh, I'm probably extreme in my views here. I think that humans will be outlawed from driving cars. I think that automation is going to hit us much, much faster than we realize. I actually think that the most important piece of technology that anyone can work on right now is implantable technology. So what that basically does is you take the computing power that's around us, continue to reduce the friction between the human interaction with that technology. So what ends up happening is we actually just implant it in our bodies, right? And so how do you combat like automation, robotics, et cetera? Like you essentially augment the human body and and give us robot-like features, right? And like that sounds insane, right? And I know it sounds insane, but 
no, there's that, that people are talking about yeah. it. It's true. Did you hear that you could now store store things in an atom? Did you, yep. did you see that? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I mean, people are talking about ingesting things that are Absolutely. like chips and so like so think of, so think about this. Ready? So here's a couple of pieces of technology that I think are really interesting. So one, there's something called uh, I think it's called deep brain stimulation, right? Mm-hmm. So what they there's a study that's been done where they've located where depression lives in the brain, right? It's called the medial mm-hmm. forebrain, right? And so what they've been able to do is uh, using electrical impulses that have uh, hyper accuracy, right? They basically hit that medial forebrain with these electrical impulses, right? Mm-hmm. And they did this over four years. They give this treatment, right? And four years later, they're able to show that people still four years later have lower levels of depression than they had before they had this you know, therapy done, right? So all of a sudden now we're going to use electrical impulses. Well, why are we having to go to the doctor to do that, right? If we have a chip embedded in our brain, right? Or implanted in our brain, now all of a sudden we can do that right there, right? Why do I have to, when I think, oh, I can't remember the name of that restaurant, do I have to then say, okay, tell my hands to go to my computer, type it in the computer and have Google tell me. At some point, Google is just going to literally, I'm going to be able to think what they thought. The neuron's going to fire. It's going to run a Google search, right? I'm going to have the answer and you're never even going to know I didn't know, right? And so when you start thinking about this stuff, I have no clue, right? Predictions to me are like, you've got to be able to say, this is going to happen and here's the timeline. I got no clue what the timeline is, right? So I don't really think of these as predictions as much as I think directionally, this is where we're going, right? The other interesting thing when it comes to these implantables is a neural bypass, mm-hmm. right? So paralysis, right? The neuron fire says, hey, like leg move, right? It doesn't move. There's a disconnection between the actual muscles responding to the, neuro, uh, the neuron fry, firing, right? And so with a neural bypass, what ends up happening, you know, as I understand it, is basically there's an artificial connection between the neuron and the muscular response, mm-hmm. right? And so this piece of technology can literally, you know, cure or fix paralysis, because it's bypassing that ner- that neural it's like an extension cord. And that's very interesting, much. especially related to to veterans. Because I've I've seen people like three D printing prosthet- prosthetics yes. that you can move the fingers using like some kind of technology, and then they have these like exoskeletons for yep. veterans as well, which is pretty interesting as well. Absolutely, yeah. So, so I think that there's like all of this stuff where technology is just augmenting humans, right? Yeah. I, I I use the word implantables, right? Because I think that's like the the end goal. But I think it's you know exoskeletons are a perfect example. Like it's an augmentation of the human body using technology, but it's on the external rather than the internal first, right? But even right. with like war too, you have like drones, you have the Boston Absolutely. Dynamics robots and things like that. Absolutely. Um, some of the other things that I think are interesting. So biotechnology is super interesting to me, right? Um, I think that. Right now, if I was a entrepreneur, the two areas that I think are essentially like, you know, quote unquote mobile was, you know, back in like 2005, six, seven, right, is definitely automation. So artificial intelligence, machine learning, right? That at this point almost feels like it's a no brainer, yeah. right? In most people's minds. Um, and the second is biotech, right? Mm-hmm. And so everything from stem cell treatments, gene mm-hmm. therapy, genomics. We, yeah, genomic. I mean, just all this stuff, right? And it's, um, I don't know if I quite believe this yet, right? So I'm, I'm going to say this, and that's my caveat, is uh, the human body may be the one thing that we interact with on an almost daily basis, like mammals in general, that we didn't create from a like a software layer, right? Yeah. So if you think of pretty much everything else that we interact with, what you know, whether it's a tool, we took a bunch of different you know, commodities, put them together in a manufacturing process and created a tool, and then we use that tool, right? So we understand how we put this stuff together, right? buildings, cars, you know, all the, a lot of the stuff we understand. The things that humans actually struggle to understand are things that we didn't create, mm-hmm. right? So like space. We just found seven planets. <laughs> right? Like like shit, we didn't create space, so like we got to figure that out, right? And like and it's a learning exercise, right? Well like our bodies 
you know, we don't quite understand it and, and technology is just making it more easy for us to understand it. And the more knowledge we get, all of a sudden you start seeing people doing crazy stuff, right? Yeah. Like Soylent, I think is super interesting. I don't yeah. know if necessarily like that's yeah. the way. Shout win. out to Soylent. Shout out to right? Soylent. <laughs> You get but, the monthly case now? I had one this morning. I have one uh, <laughs> in my backpack right over there. Have, 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 have you guys tried the uh, the caffeine? Yeah. Soil? Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah That's my good. favorite one. The founder is from, he studied in Georgia Tech. So shout out to Atlanta. Oh, nice. And then nice, he was nice. in LA where we met. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. So, awesome. So that's yeah. just like talking about how there's more things outside of Silicon Absolutely. Valley. Absolutely. Biotech, Atlanta. You know, there's some things going Absolutely. on out there. So yeah. And to your point about um, like these implantables, I know that even today with just having your Apple Watch, and for those of you who don't have an Apple Watch, there's a little like hard monitor. So I've heard cases where people all of a sudden start seeing uh, the heart rate shooting through the roof. They go to the emergency room and then the doctors tell you like, listen, thank God you came because you were having a stroke. So that's just like one example of how this technology could save lives. If you can know that you're having a stroke 30 minutes before you have a stroke, then you can take action and you can be alive. So- Absolutely. Yeah, look, I, I think that there's, you know, so death's really interesting to me, right? In terms of, do we ever cure it? I have no clue, right? But I do think that if you look at things that are valuable in the world, right, a lot of them are decreasing the number of deaths that are due to some action, yeah. right? So if you think of Uber, right? Driverless cars. Yeah, Uber, Lyft, all this stuff. Like, I would make the argument, actually, that one of the most valuable things about it is drunk driving drastically decreased. There's been a ton of studies. And there's a case in Austin in Texas. Yeah, yep. that's a good example. Yep. Where um, the government officials in Austin decided to outlaw Uber and Lyft, and then they started seeing the number of drunk driving cases going up. Crazy. And uh, it was just like, a, and didn't make any sense that Absolutely. they would want to do that. Yeah. And, and so it's just like, okay, like they're valuable because of that, right? You look at all the biotech stuff as you start to, you know, eradicate certain diseases, right? Or, or, or better understand what is the propensity for someone to get a disease. Like all of these things are valuable because it's just decreasing the likelihood or probability that somebody dies, right? Now there's a lot of ways to die, right? I've got a brother who always says it's hard to die, but there's a lot of ways you can do it, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so like if we can just decrease the number of ways, right? Yeah. Then I think that's one way. And so that's like with the body stuff. But when you look at the automation artificial intelligence, machine learning, I die laughing, right? So, so on Twitter, I've probably with some of the more controversial stuff I talk about is the people who are all tweeting about like, oh, look at these dummies who are all going to get their jobs taken in the factories or whatever. I'm like, hey, loser, your job's about to get taken by a robot too, yep. right? And so yep. here, like I invest full-time for a living now and I fully believe that venture capital is going to get eaten by robots. Yeah. I right? mean, like look at Angelus. Yeah. And so, so here's the example that I've used, right? So I've tried to build this and it's really, really hard. But what do I do when I make an investment decision? I basically am looking at for traits, right? And doing pattern recognition with a human, right? And then I'm looking at the market opportunity. Those are two mm-hmm. things I really look at, right? Is who is this person? You know, do I think that they can build what they're saying they can build? And what's the market opportunity, right? Because we invest so, so early. Who's better than humans at pattern recognition? Computers. Yeah. So all I'm doing is I'm asking questions. I'm getting you know inputs into my brain. I'm synthesizing what that information means, and then I'm making a decision. Yep. Like that sounds like a fucking computer to me. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so why can't the computer have a chat conversation with a person? Ask a bunch of questions. Take those inputs. Synthesize. Okay, what is this person telling me? And then make a decision in a binary outcome: either we're going to invest or we're not. It's interesting. Right. Yeah. And so with these like what previously was considered high skill jobs are not really so high skilled. And I actually think that those are easier to replace than 
you know, the robotic arm that flips burgers, right? Because I, mean, I saw that recently. And, and it's happening, like, even with, like, the investment banking things as well yep. and creating spreadsheets and, or just finance, like high frequency trading, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> like, if you're still trading by hand now, right? Like, you're probably losing, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? Or you're like at least you, not if optimized. If you're a surgeon and you're not learning how to use nanorobots, like, yep. you know, yeah, you're doing it wrong. So we'll bring it back to uh, the lightning round. <laughs> <laughs> We, but we could probably talk about all this crazy yeah, stuff forever. Yeah. for a while. <laughs> and the lightning round is actually, it's the piece of our podcast where we'll actually ask you several questions and try to provide brief answers, but fill them with any strategies, any tactics or any resources that you've used to get to where you are today. Cool. And Arthur, do you want to take it away? Sure. Do we want so, to switch out the questions this time? Well, let's just roll with it. Okay. Uh, we can introduce <laughs> some new ones if you want. But for this one, Imagine you're moving to a new city and you're starting from scratch. You don't know anyone and you have a hundred dollars. And the reason we ask this question is because there's a lot of folks out there who are listening to the podcast who have limited resources. Yep. And so let's say you only have a hundred dollars. What would you do to get yourself back on the feed and get to the point where you are now? Interesting. So if I had a hundred bucks, new city, I would probably look at what makes you successful, right? So like network and resources. Right. And so I think the first thing I would do is I would immediately go look for all the ways I could meet as many people as possible. Right. So I would probably I'd use the internet to one, understand like more like meetup.com, like what are these like professional meetups? Two is I would probably go on Facebook and look for all the different groups in that city. Three, which I actually have a friend who did this, so I know that it works. I would get on like a Tinder or Bumble or whatever yeah. and I would change the uh, description. Right. And I would make it say, you know, new to the city, looking to meet people who blah, 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 whatever. And I would like make it super clear, like this is like a platonic thing. I'm just looking to meet people because you're going to get a ton of impressions on it. And then I would go on uh, Craigslist, right? And I would put up ads or, uh, or like job openings or postings or whatever that's saying, hey, look, this is what I'm looking for. I'm trying to create this group or whatever. Right. And so I think that I would do that's like first thing is go look to find where people already are. Then I would reach out to, the people that during those searches were like the connectors, right? So most people, there's like a Better Business Bureau, there's yep. a, some sort of like economic development, there's usually like some like local bloggers, right? Whatever. And I wouldn't just focus on like tech, right? Like food bloggers. Yeah. Guess what? If you're a food blogger with a couple, you know, tens of thousands of followers, you probably know people in the city, right? Yeah. You know, the restaurant owner, like all this stuff. And so I would just try to meet some of those key people. And what I would tell them is I'd say, look, here's what I'm trying to do. Here's like my ultimate goal. Here's what I need from you. But before I do that, what can I do to help you? Yeah. Right. And I think that like give to get model, right? Not so much I'm giving because I want you to get, you know, give me something yeah. back, but just understanding that like if you provide value, like the value will come back. Yeah. I think that you could probably build a network really, really quickly, probably like yeah. a 30, 60 day period. And then what I would do is uh, from a job perspective, I would intentionally try to pick a job where I could find a cross section of like learning some skill that I thought would be, you know, valuable in that area, but then also where I would get a lot of FaceTime with people. Right. And so if you can just build the, like the human network, I think everything else kind of just falls in place. Yeah. That's one of the best answers. We got and I keep the hundred dollars in my pocket. I like it. I like <laughs> it. Awesome. If you could send a message to everyone on Facebook right now, what would it say? Be a good fucking human. That's good. I like it. <laughs> that's it, man. That's literally it. <laughs> to unpack it a little bit, how do you define good? Because there's a lot of people who consider themselves good. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they do ridiculous things. <laughs> um, <laughs> Which they don't think is ridiculous, right? No, completely, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that, you know, that there's this, we live in a world where it pays to be sensationalist, right? I mean, look, I just did it, right, by that that statement, <laughs> right? And so that's, you know, it's somewhat intentional. But I think there's just a set of, 
you know, human rights and like unwritten rules of how you treat another human, right? And this isn't getting into like the political, what is a human right, what is not, like the definition of it, right? As much as just like when you see someone who needs help, help, right? When you see someone who, you know, I don't know, who uh, doesn't have a jacket, like give them a jacket, right? When you see someone who like, you know, could, is having a bad day, like give them a hug, smile, like just like super easy things that are mainly always free. Yeah. And I usually measure these by, they're usually things that no one will know that you did them unless you're an asshole and egotistical and you go tell people you did it. Yeah. Or put on Snapchat. (laughs) Or or, yeah, yeah. Or like, hey, look, I'm giving this old lady a hug. Like, look what a good human I am. Like, hit me up on Tinder, right? Like, (laughs) it's it's just like look just be a good person and and i think that if we had more people who thought that way like it's hard right Mm -hmm. so like i'm the one saying it and like there's days where i probably do something and i'm like shit i had an opportunity to like do something good and i didn't do it yeah but if we just had more people doing that i think it would just create a really interesting world and a lot of times we're working on the same things individually and if we supported each other we could all win collectively and doesn't have to be lonely at the top. Absolutely. Let me ask this. I, I'm going to flip this around real go, quick. Go, you I, guys. Like that. I like that. <laughs> if you guys could have any superpower in the world, what would you want? Oh, I think, uh, let's see. I think something that would be cool is um, like being able to like read people's minds. <laughs> ah, why? Because uh, then I think naturally, I think there's a lot of people who are very intelligent, Yep. but a lot of people don't share kind of their deep inner thoughts with uh, people around them. Mm-hmm. Like people say that you might have like 500 friends on Facebook, but you only know five people or six people very closely. So I think it would be really cool to understand, like to have a deep dive into someone's thought process, someone's thoughts, because then you can learn a lot from that. I would say the power to influence. Because if, if I have the qualities that you shared before about the quote unquote good character and humility, and I see people that, I mean, but then that puts me into this position of like me yeah, saying- you got responsibility. Yeah, then I have responsibility. <laughs> like I have to be mindful of my superpower. But I think if I have the power to influence people in a certain direction, I think a lot of things can be done. All right. Is that going back in time, is that a superpower or is that- I actually just saw that uh, they figured out recently it's impossible to go back to time travel. I forget exactly what it was. Somebody's going to have to Google it, but uh, that that's what I read was uh, they figured out something to do with like the atomic level or like particles or something mm-hmm. and, and time travel is impossible. Yeah. So I guess that would be a superpower, right? Cause yeah. Because yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> everything else you learn how to do. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I would, I would say time travel because then you could always uh, go out and make mistakes. And if you screw up, then you start again. All right. So, like a video game. So this is a two-part question that I yeah, saved I like the it. second part for. I like uh, so when I was a kid... I used to tell people that the superpower I wanted was to speak every language in the world, okay. right? I like it. So My dad would love that one. Yeah, yeah. So think about this, right? Is technology will probably enable us to actually do that mm-hmm. at some point in the future. What do you think that world looks like if we all could communicate with each other? Like, how does the world change? Good I, or bad? I think it could change in several ways because in a way right now, we have a universal language to communicate with everyone. I think that's through music. Mm-hmm. However, that's not always like interpretable through words and something that like turns into action. Yep. But we have seen that when you have a piece of music that's profound, that has a certain type of message that can resonate globally, that it can lead towards positive action. And I think that 
Um, part of the reason why we're starting to, this podcast is not only to help people get jobs, but also once these people get jobs, that they help other people get jobs. Absolutely. I think if we have a way to communicate and support each other globally, um, we can organize to do not just positive things for each other, but to you know identify things in the world that we can either improve or change or eliminate. Absolutely. So, yeah. I think the access to information, because th- th- imagine like right now we're limited to the things that we could only like read and understand. But if uh, you can understand things that people write and read, uh, write and create in China or Africa, and then yep. all of a sudden, like all the ideas that are in people's heads or societies are now unlocked. So I think they'll create two things. One, it provides all these, all this new content. On the other hand, how do you sort and go through that content as well? Because now you have like 10x or 100x of information that could potentially be, now you need a filter for that, right? <laughs> that's, a, that's a really good point, especially because a lot of the things that are put into the internet are kind of like come from the U.S. and then English yep. language. Yep. And if other people are like putting it in their own language or we could all understand it, that's an interesting. I, I saw the other day somebody was talking about, uh, or I tweeted something about uh, emojis, mm-hmm. right? And like how penetrated like the U.S. consumer, right? So it's like 74% of all Americans used an emoji in 2016 or something. That's big. Right, like, like some huge number. <laughs> mm-hmm. And somebody tweeted back immediately and was like, yeah, it's the modern day hieroglyphics. Yeah. Yeah, right. It communicates real. this like idea, emotion, action, etc. Mm-hmm. In like an image. Yeah. Right. And I was like, that's that's essentially the closest I think we have to like an international language. Right. Yeah. It's actually like visual. Yeah. yeah. So I think to your point, right, yeah. is is unlocking that. And, and like, uh, and there's also like these videos where you can see like you can be on Skype with someone in another language and you could speak in your native language mm-hmm. and they'll translate it into their language Crazy. while they're talking. So that's yeah. kind of yeah. cool. Also, like there's digital nomads that like travel around <laughs> the world. They don't have a country that they a citizen of. So I think that potentially in the next fifty years or hundred yeah. years, if you're not limited by the language, you're not limited by the government, you're not limited by resources. Because if you could communicate with anyone in the world, then you could potentially create relationships and yeah. find resources anywhere in the world. There's a great website that covers that called Teleport uh, that Balaji and Sten, that was like the creators of Stipe has. So you guys should check out Teleport and. Estonia is also very interesting because they're creating like e-citizenship as well. Ah. So like no matter where you are, you can like build something out there. And I think Stripe is also creating something with Atlas as well. So this whole concept of communicating different languages and geographies, I think the internet and technology is changing a lot of that as well. Yeah. 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 I would say uh, for me, so if everyone in the world spoke the same language and we can all relate to each other, I think there would actually be a lot of revolutions. Because people, <laughs> yeah. people living uh, That's in... Real. Uh, because we take a living in the United States for granted. Arthur and I were born in Ukraine. And I can just, from my personal experience, I can relate that if people just realize what other people have that they don't have and how they can attain them, even listening to the Breaking Sharps podcast, our podcast is in English. But if our podcast was translated into all the different languages, yeah. then people will now have kind of the keys to go and actually do it or know that everyone faces struggles and now they can go and... um figure out how to start that business, how to break into the company. So I think at first there would be probably a lot of like revolutions, maybe yep. a bloodbath. But mm-hmm. then over time, people are just going to unite and just they're going to realize that like they're just like a world citizen. Absolutely. Interesting. What is uh, Ukraine uh, similar to Bulgaria? I'm going to Bulgaria it's, later this year. Um, I would say the, the, speak the, the, there's Russian is definitely like a language that Bulgaria uses. Yep, um, they, sh- they share a little bit. Yeah. There's some similarities. Um, all right. I'm going to have so, to get up with you guys before They all uh, probably <laughs> drink a lot. So <laughs> be careful. And, and, and let, let's, let's take it back to like some of the classic questions we asked. You, you mentioned a book that you read that yep. helped you with product management. 
Are there any other books and resources that you suggest for people that want to either break into growth or product management yeah. or just that you suggest to think about getting into tech that yeah. you would recommend your veterans so to the, read so or even a, just people in general? There's four books that I usually tell people. I read actually when I was in Iraq that I think also helped along with like the maturity of just the experience was just like kind of from a foundation standpoint, really like changed my mindset more than anything. So the first, the two of them were uh, by uh, Robert Kiyosaki, yep, um, rich, so dad, rich, poor rich dad, poor dad. And then there was another one. Um, I think it was like uh, the quadrant or something, right? About like, you know, you can be self-employed, you can be employed, whatever. Right. So I think those two were good. The third one was uh, thinking grow rich. Yep. Right. And then the fourth Napoleon one, Hill. Well, yeah, Napoleon Hill. Yep. And then the fourth one was the richest man in Babylon. Yeah. Right. My cousin told me. And about so, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so those four books, I think kind of like started me off like, oh my God, there's this world that I don't know about and like yeah. I need to go like really read. Yeah. Um, and then now I think that if you kind of bring it to more like, you know, modern applicable books to technology, I really liked uh, Blake Masters, Peter Thiel's uh, Zero to One, yep. right? Horowitz's uh, Hard Thing About Hard Things. Yep. I actually really liked uh, Adam Grant's uh, The Originals. I've um, never read that one. Yeah, yeah. That one was really, really cool. The originals. It, it's all about kind of, um, you know, thinking differently, et cetera. Mm-hmm. There's a book called, I think it's called, oh man, I might mess this up. I think it's called Think Bigger or uh, it's all about category kings and like uh, like creating categories rather than being the second player in a category. Yeah. Um, so that one's really good. What There's about a, any, any blogs or any newsletters that you follow? Yeah. Oh, yeah, so I'm, cool. I'm real big on newsletters. I actually don't go read any of the news sites, right? Yeah. So I don't go to TechCrunch. Mm-hmm. I don't go to any of these things. What I do instead is the newsletters I get. So I read uh, Mattermark Daily. Um, I think Nick does a great job with that. Yep. Um, Shout out to Nick. Read, He's a veteran too, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nick is. I read Term Sheet from Fortune. I read uh, Axios's uh, Pro Rata. Yep. Dan does. Axios actually has a, some a couple good ones. So I, I get a uh, let's see Pro Rata. I get Generate, which is their energy one. I get uh, Vitals, which is their healthcare yep. one. Strictly VC does a good job. Yep. CB Insights. Uh, CB Insights actually. Uh, Nikhil's doing a a new one around healthcare that's really good. And then uh, what else? There's a bunch more, I think. I, pro- I literally probably read 15 to 20 newsletters yeah, every same. single day. I like the Social Capital Snippets. Social Capital's got a good one. Snippets, the Media Redef newsletter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I do subscribe to Rico's newsletter as yeah. well. Medium oh. actually does a great job summarizing, to my personal interest, what uh, mm-hmm. what comes in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think Benedict Evans has a good newsletter Absolutely. for mobile. Ben Thompson, I Ben will get mad. I don't. Uh, I don't subscribe, but I get his mm-hmm. one a week for free, and, mm-hmm. uh, and I like it. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. I share it with a lot of people. Hopefully, they convert for him. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah. There's a reporter at Fortune that does one called uh, the Profile. Okay. Um, and so she finds a couple, like one or two person people to profile. Yeah. And then she finds one or two like companies, like really deep, kind of in depth profiles. That's good. And then um, there's also I found it really interesting. Now I don't do any like RSS feeds or anything. But what I have done is I did it maybe six months ago and I'll probably do it again soon is I just completely got rid of everyone that I followed on Twitter mm-hmm. and then just refollowed like only like news sources. Got right. It. So I didn't listen to any like individual opinions. It yeah. was just like, give me like news sources, it was, like very curated. Yeah. We'll see if yeah. I, uh, if I keep doing that or not. It's, it. uh, I miss what my friends say sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And um, one of the, one of the other questions that we usually ask in the lightning round, it's about advice. And um, obviously, you've done a lot in your life. You've done a lot of jobs. You've started companies. You worked in, you served in the military. For someone who just who wants to break into tech or who's thinking about tech, and they pull up a job description online, 
and let's assume that they're uh, in, still in the military. They have a few months left before they finish service. And they look at this job description and they see like 10 bullet points that say, oh, we need two years of experience or like, hey, you need to have two years of experience uh, managing social media or whatever that is. Uh, what is that one piece of advice that you have for that person? Rules are made to be broken. There you go. Right? Yep. So I think that um, people do... what. When I see two years of experience, what that means is I want somebody who has experience doing this. Yeah. Right. It's not like they're hiring a you know a senior vice president that needs you know fifteen years of industry expertise and you know twenty seven recommendations and you know all that kind of stuff. So I just want somebody who this isn't. They're not learning on the job. Yeah. Right. So if you go to them and you say, "Hey, actually, I built. I don't know. Let, let's say that you want to get a job at a. Uh, I don't know. Let's say the job is at Facebook, right? Yeah. Around something they say you need two years of experience, like with social media management or something, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. If you go to them and say, "Hey, actually, I built a Facebook page from nothing to fifty thousand, you know, engaged, you know, audience, and every post gets X number of reach, blah blah, whatever." Like they don't care if that took two years or two weeks, yeah. right? Like, yeah. like again, I think we're going away from you know, prove to me the stops along your career earned you this job yeah. to. Like, what can you do for me now? Yeah. Right. And if you can show that I've built products before or I've done X before and I can come do it for you, I think that's really, really powerful. Yeah. Would you yeah. would you give that same type of advice to your four brothers that wanna follow your same path? Or what's what's your advice to them? Uh <laughs> yeah, so I think that with them it's the exact same thing, right? It's just like just one just get started. I mean, I I, I think that doubt and fear kill more dreams than anything else. Yeah. Right. So just like, like here. So when I think of just life in general, I think there's a lot of parallels to business. Right. But like in life, like newsflash, nobody knows what they're doing. Yeah. Everyone's pretending they know what they're doing. Yeah. Right. And so like, if you just get started, that's already half the battle. I think that people are very quiet about what their goals are. And actually you, by putting out, here's my goal, here's what I'm trying to accomplish it usually ends up being a a rallying cry. Like people yeah. who see that say, oh, that person wants to do X. I can help them get there by doing X, Y, or Z, right? Yeah. And so like being very vocal about what you want to do and why you want to do it can help kind of the world conform to making that happen. And then the last thing is with them, that none of them really want to work in technology, mm-hmm. right? And so they want to work in all these other different industries. And I think that I don't even have to tell them this. I think they just know it's like, understanding how technology or other industries impact, yeah. right? And so it's like, you know, if you want to break into tech, you can actually like break into the medical field yeah. using technology, yeah. right? Like I would still argue that you're in technology, yeah. but you're, you know, a nurse or you're yeah. a medical device salesperson yeah. or, you know, whatever, like that's still technology. You don't have to go work at Facebook to be in technology, yeah. right? And so this stuff is, you want to understand it at a kind of again, macro level, right? Mm-hmm. But like what you do every day, I can convince you that selling ice cream out of the back of a truck is in the technology industry yeah. if you give me enough time. Yeah. Right? yeah. So it's just like, what do you actually want to do and just go do it? Yeah. Right? yeah. It's, you're nothing until you launch. Yeah. 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 Exactly. It, you're nothing until you launch and then done is better than perfect. Yeah, right. There you go. <laughs> cool. Awesome. And just to end, do you listen to a lot of music? Is there any like, type of music oh, that, that you, you listen to? Oh, man. You guys are going to expose me. Yeah. <laughs> So uh, I like three types of music. I like old school rap. I'm a huge Biggie fan. Oh, yeah. He just passed. I mean, his anniversary just passed. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I wish he just passed away. Yeah. Then we could have had a couple more years of his music. What's your favorite um, Biggie song? Oh, favorite? Ten Crack Commandments. Okay, classic. Yeah, 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 of course. So I like that. I like a lot of, uh, like, I don't even know if we call it rap, hip-hop, what, what it is now. Uh-huh. Um, Trap music. Like, uh, so Migos, yeah. Drake, you know, all that stuff. Uh-huh. 
And then uh, from North Carolina, so I listen to country music too. Yeah, classic. Yeah, what yeah, was yeah, your nice. favorite country song? Wagon Wheel. No, 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 no. I don't know. Yeah, there's a lot of people in North Carolina who just threw up. You saying that's country <laughs> music? <laughs> <laughs> I actually like. Uh, so my favorite artist is he didn't really put out that much music. Uh, this guy Corey Smith, okay. um, who uh, he's just you know he's just a regular guy. He seems like you know kind of comes off as just a. Uh, you know, relatable human and yeah. talks about stuff that I'm like, yeah, yeah, I could see myself doing that, right? And uh, yeah. off to the races. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. So for our listeners who want to get in touch with you, are you on Twitter? Um, I mean, you are on Twitter, but yeah. what else? How can the, what is the best way for them to reach you? Tweet me for sure. It's just A Pompliano at A Pompliano. That's how we met. So it's, it's true. He'll reach yeah. out. Yeah, yeah. I, I try to be, listen. Twitter, to me, Twitter is, uh, I look at it almost like a chat, right? Yeah. It's like, I, I hate people who you tweet at them and they don't respond and they start tweeting That's about so something annoying. else. Yeah. Like, hey, man, just like, like you saw. I know you saw my message, yeah, bro. Literally, what I do is if I don't want to talk, sometimes I just send a smiley face because like, I saw yeah. you. Right? Right. Or I'll favorite. Like favorite right? is, so yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Like, hey, I saw it. You got it. Yeah, yeah. I got you, right? But like, I don't have anything to say or whatever. But yeah, at A Pompliano is, uh, best way cool. all right thanks man yeah thanks a lot peace all right, guys thanks for checking us out we appreciate you for listening and always love your feedback on how we can do better if you enjoyed this let us know what you thought on the reviews by going to itunes searching for breaking into startups subscribing to our podcast and leaving a review also if you know someone who came from a non-traditional background and is looking to break into tech Encourage them to sign up to our newsletter or tell them to join the Breaking Into Startups community on Facebook. Remember, if they don't let you in through the front door, go through the back door, around it, under it, or through it. Let's break in. Let's break in.